What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Skywatcher What's Up webcast, where we take a look at everything from what's up in the nighttime sky to equipment to helpful tips and tricks. And uh, at the end of the month, we have a special guest on to talk about their specialty in the field of astronomy. Um, we're happy to have you today. Sorry, just getting some stuff up um, in the way there. Uh, we're happy to have you here today. Hopefully, you've had a good week and you're hanging out. I'm sure some of us are also burning up out there because it's a little toasty um, out there, especially here in the Southwest. Uh, today's episode, we're talking about trends in astrophotography. Um, I have a handful of things that we tend to see come up or are seeing come up, and uh, we figured it'd be kind of cool to discuss some of that uh, today. So um, this will be something I try to elaborate on more. I don't have a lot of content to deliver, but we'll probably elaborate a lot more on that um, as well. But um, just like anything else, if you like what you see here at the What's Up webcast, please go ahead and subscribe. Um, let's us know we're doing a good job and helps it keep, uh, helps it, keep it going. Um, if you leave a like on a video, that also does a really nice job as well. If you have an idea for a future What's Up webcast, go ahead and email us at info at skywatcherusa.com and title it What's Up. Um, and uh, we will be doing that um, all the time, essentially. But uh, yeah, if you have an idea for a What's Up webcast episode, please email that to us and uh, we will try and see how we can fit that into the queue. As I've said before, we generally build these out months in advance. So just because we have a topic that was sent to us doesn't mean it's going to be on in the next you know, few weeks. Um, it will be put in the queue, hopefully, and we'll try to get to that. Um, Derek is asking about the Star Adventure GTIs. Uh, they are here. They are sitting in the warehouse right now. They are going through the uh, quality assurance or QA process right now. First shipments of new products generally take longer to go through QA than all the following shipments because we want to make sure everything is okay. So uh, they are here in the United States um, and they will probably be shipping hopefully in the next couple weeks. Um, but there, hopefully that uh, makes people feel better. They are here. It's just going through the QA process and that takes time when we get the initial shipments of stuff. So there you go. Um, hopefully that lays to rest the GTI uh, requests. Um, so trends. Um, trends in astrophotography are, is something that comes up quite a bit. And I may even find some as we're talking that'll pop into my head. If I don't have slides on it, we'll just talk about it. Uh, another real quick thing that I meant to bring up. Uh, we are having a sale starting August 1st on our Skywatcher Threadless store. So if you want some shirts or cool swag, um, there is a sale starting on August 1st. Um, so that's coming up, let me see, about a week or so from now, a little over a week. Uh, if you're looking to get some cool stuff, uh, check that out. And there'll be a sale up and coming on the Threadless store. So if you're looking for some cool swag there. All right, uh, trends. So this happens a lot. Stuff comes up a lot. Um, I'm going to try to discuss some of this. If I miss some of it, um, sorry, but these are things that I'm seeing that come up or, you know, they kind of phase in and phase out. Um, they might not be a new trend, but they do have like seasonal. So we'll get into that uh, really quick and I'll try to elaborate and kind of give my thoughts on them. Um, I wanted to approach this episode because how we came up with it was kind of through another path um 
And I don't want to end up being like policing anyone's creativity or artistic uh, thoughts on image processing and stuff like that. Um, but let's try to be as straight as we can on it. But um, we are not the police on how people should do certain things. Uh, so the first one would be the Hubble palette. Uh, this one's not so much a trend. It's just, it's kind of solidified itself in here. And for those of you who don't know what the Hubble palette is, the Hubble palette is basically where you're using narrow band filters to isolate certain wavelengths of light and then basically color mapping um, that object using those filters. This is the same process the Hubble Space Telescope has made so popular. And that is done by using H-alpha, sulfur-2, and oxygen-3 filters to highlight certain wavelengths of light, generally coming from like emission nebula objects. So um, like what you see here with the um, M16, the Eagle Nebula, that's very popular. Um, M42 up in uh, Orion. Um, a lot of any emission target you can do narrowband work on. But if you want to make a color image, um, you can move stuff around and assign the colors to certain filters to give you kind of a cool false color image. And in this particular palette, this is what the Hubble Space Telescope generally uses, and that breakdown is something like this, where you have H-alpha is the green, sulfur is red, and oxygen-3 is blue. Um, like I said, this is best done with emission nebulas. Um, but this is a very popular thing. I wouldn't say so much it's a trend anymore. It's Like I said, it's kind of solidified itself in astrophotography, especially um, if you're doing uh, deep space imaging. Um, generally done with monochrome cameras, but now I've seen people start to get similar results with like a color camera and these new uh, multiband filters. They kind of move the colors around and you can select what's going to what be what. And you can kind of get something similar with color cameras. Now, what I wanted to bring up on the Hubble palette is a lot of people, um, I see a lot of people who are new to astrophotography or maybe they're new to like monochrome cameras that they feel that they need to go out and spend a ton of money on their filter sets because this is what everybody else does. You need to have LRGB, of course, to have color. And then it's like, oh, I need to go out and buy H-alpha, O3, and sulfur-2 filters. And then I'm good to go. Well, what you'll actually find is that H-alpha is probably going to be your most common narrowband filter that you're going to use, followed by oxygen-3. Uh, most emission nebula targets are going to have uh, high amounts of signal using those two filters. However, sulfur-2 or S2, there's a lot less out there than people think. And narrowband filters, especially when we start talking, you know, 36 millimeter, 50 millimeter, uh, you know, two inch, when you get big filters for like an APS-C or even a full frame camera, those filters tend to cost a fair amount of money. Most narrowband filters are going to cost a lot of money for each filter, um, especially as that band pass gets smaller. So on average, most filters are probably about seven nanometers in band pass. You do get down to six and five, and then the real high-end ones are three nanometers, very selective on what's going through that filter. And the narrower the band pass gets, the more expensive those filters generally are. Um, 
So what I've seen a lot of people do is they go out, they get a monochrome camera, and then they spend a bunch of money on filters. And that's good if you want to do that. But what I find a lot of times is we rarely actually use our S2 filters. Um, there are people who are doing Hubble palette and you do generally need the S2 to make the Hubble palette. But you'll find a large majority of targets out there do not have a lot of signal in the S2 portion. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of people who end up buying an S2 filter, myself included, and not really using it. So what I would recommend first is not running into buying all three of your narrowband filters just because people say you should have it so you can do if you really want to do the Hubble palette then yeah you need all three filters but you can do a lot of really nice stuff with only H alpha and oxygen three filters you don't need the s2 filter for a large majority of objects so I wanted to bring the Hubble palette up because the trend I find here is a lot of people just go online to some form website or talk to someone and they're like oh this is what you need to buy and that's just what you need but I feel a lot of people should not rush into buying all three of the narrowband filters um, do so slowly you definitely get an H alpha filter mess around with that then after that do the O3 and then if you feel like you want to have it then do the S2 filter um, but you have to remember that most narrowband filters are going to be between three to four hundred or more per filter so you know if you're especially if you're talking modern day cameras like the 2600 or the 6200 which require these big two inch filters you're several hundred dollars for each filter if not more if you're doing you know something like a chroma filter or an unmounted filter from chroma or somewhere similar they are expensive so that's where i have a problem with uh people just following what other people say especially when it comes to the Hubble palette that this is what you need to buy just go do it well that might be coming from someone who's been doing imaging for a while and ultimately has built their setup the way they want it but as a beginner um, or someone who's just getting into narrowband I would really recommend not splurging on all three filters at once maybe get an H alpha I would definitely recommend an H alpha maybe get yourself an O3 and then later on look at the sulfur too um, but you could probably invest that 300 plus dollars into something else that would be more beneficial for you at the moment and then down the line add the s2 filter um, so you can do the hubble palette but that's that's what i wanted to talk about primarily is hopping on the trend that just because everyone says it's there or just because everyone uses it or everyone has it in their wheel doesn't mean it's always beneficial for you to just go out and throw a bunch of money on it initially which brings me to the second uh, part of this and that is bicolor imaging um, bicolor imaging is um, basically using two narrowband filters to achieve a color shot um, this is generally done with the H alpha and O3 filters and this is what I'm talking about where you don't have to go out and buy the s2 filter the s2 filter obviously will give you some cool stuff but there's a lot of really effective images and really good targets out there that will work very well with just an h alpha and an o3 filter 
and you can combine those um, to give you the bicolor images. Um, this is a picture of the Crescent Nebula. It was only done with the H-alpha and the O3 filters. Um, and then from there, you can actually make your third channel, the green channel, by blending your H-alpha and O3 data and basically making a synthetic H-beta uh, channel um, or hydrogen beta channel. My blend is 15% hydrogen, 75% oxygen three. Um, that is how I do that. That's how I created uh, this shot right here. And you can mess around with your blend any way that you want. Um, but this is something, like I was saying earlier, that you can do with just two filters. You don't need to go out and spend that extra three, four, you know, even $1,000 on some of the top-tier large format S2 filters. And I'm not trying to knock S2. It's just the reality is there's not a ton of targets that have a lot of signal in S2. And if you're going to go out and be spending four or $500 on a filter or more... I find, especially if you're just getting started, there's probably a better use of that money for the time being um, that you could do with something else, like a nice motorized focuser maybe, or a better mount, or a better camera, or there's a ton of things I would recommend before dumping a bunch of money into that final S2 filter. And you can still take some beautiful images, even from home. This was taken in my backyard, um, and you... Those narrow band filters are going to vary. Maybe you could even spend that money on doing a narrow oxygen three filter because generally with oxygen three, um, you get a lot, uh, you get a lot more interference, uh, from like moonlight or light pollution because of the freak, the, the band or the uh, frequency of oxygen three, because it's in that bluish green region of the spectrum. Um, you get a lot more moonlight um, that can affect that. Where H-alpha, you could image in a full moon with no problem with like a seven nanometer filter and it's not really a big deal. Um, if you're going to buy an oxygen three filter, I would get the narrowest bandpass you could possibly afford. Um, for our remote observatory, our narrow band setup is a five nanometer H-alpha, a three nanometer oxygen three, and a five nanometer sulfur two. Um, the H-alpha and the sulfur filters are way in the red part of the spectrum. So there's not a lot of issue with street lights or other light pollution issues in that part of the spectrum. So you can go a bit broader on those filters, which also allows them to be a little bit less expensive. But you can go broader on the S2 and the H-alpha but the O3, if you want to image, especially from light pollution, um, and you want to be image, you want to take as much advantage as you can when the moon is up. You want that to be as narrow as possible. So rather than going out and splurging on that S2 filter, maybe look at splurging on your O3 filter instead. Um, so rather than getting a seven nanometer O3, which would be okay, but when the moon comes up, you're going to be a lot more limited. Maybe look at getting a five or even a three nanometer because then the amount of time you can spend on O3 is going to be more, which is also something that you're going to want to do because O3 is in the bluish part of the spectrum and most cameras don't have as much signal um, in that part of the spectrum. So you're going to have to make up with some longer exposure times when you're shooting an oxygen three where H alpha, it's very, very strong. So that's where I find that 
having those two colors, you can take some really nice images just using H alpha and O3. Rather than going out and splurging and getting all three narrowband filters to do the Hubble palette, I would probably say, hey, get yourself a nice H alpha and get yourself a really nice O3 filter. And then in a year or two or whatever, whatever you want to do, then maybe go get yourself an S2. But you can start taking some amazing images from your backyard with these narrow, the bicolor uh, stuff by just having those two narrowband filters. So something like a five or six nanometer or seven um, nanometer H alpha, and then maybe like a three or five oxygen three, you'll be busy for a long time um, taking some really cool images of nebulas in the summer and the winter time. So uh, bicolor imaging is a, is a very good uh, method. If you're shooting from in town and you're stuck in your backyard, you can make some beautiful images uh, with just those two filters and then blending them to make your H beta channel to give you the green. And there you go. Um, it's generally more effective that way. So um, bicolor imaging is also a good, it's not so much a trend now, but it's become kind of a staple. Um, but it's a, I find that works very good. And that's actually what's happening with, you know, some of these one shot color cameras too, with um, these multiband narrowband filters, like the H alpha and the O3, like the L extreme from Optilong is an H alpha O3. You're basically doing bicolor imaging. It's letting the H alpha and the O3, you're just doing it in one go at that point. So bicolor imaging would be something else that I, you know, would bring up there. Now, something that's a little bit more of a trend right now would be starless images. Um, this is when you actually have software go in and remove the stars. Now, there are a couple different reasons why you would want to remove the stars. Um, I have some friends of mine that remove them during their processing so they can work on the nebula and then they apply the stars back um, into the final image. But what some people are starting to do or have been doing for a while is removing the stars from the shot completely to give you kind of this unique artistic approach and that's really what i find these starless images are is art um, especially from like a black and white perspective like my shot here of the california nebula um, i was just messing around just to see how it would work and it looks really odd um, but what's nice about having a starless image is it really kind of gives you a unique way of showcasing the target and this uh works really well with nebulas where you get that very delicate uh, nebulosity in there and maybe your eyes are being drawn to the stars where if you remove the stars you're kind of focusing just on the overall structure of the object so that's not a bad thing to do but it really is in my opinion more of an artistic approach it's obviously not true um, and I have some friends of mine that are sticklers for being scientifically accurate um, when it comes uh, to astrophotography and I understand that some people just want to approach it as art or just a little bit of both. Um, but the starless images for a while, I can't say it's it's kind of been trendy lately, but a lot of people have been messing with removing the stars uh, from their nebula images just to give kind of this unique overall approach. Um, but I definitely throw it more in the it's art category um, at that point rather than being scientifically accurate. So... Um, but you know, it's kind of what you want to do. And that's where astrophotography kind of blends on being science and, um, art all at the same time. Uh, 
yeah, so it's just kind of your personal taste um, on what you're trying to achieve uh, with your images. But starless images have become a bit of a thing over the last couple of years. Um, PixInsight does that. Um, I think there's some other plugins for Photoshop that can do it, but PixInsight has a good plugin for it that I've just kind of messed around with. But it's something unique to mess with. Um, but I find it works really good on like nebulas, like you see here at the California Nebula, something that has a lot of structure to it. Um, you can go ahead and remove the stars with a mask and try it out. It's kind of a unique thing. Um, even if you have some old data laying around, just throw it through there and see what you think about it. But I find that's a little trendy right now. Um, maybe it's on the tail end of the trend, but it's something. Uh, lucky imaging. Now, lucky imaging has kind of been around for a while. It's basically capturing a large amount of short exposures. And that's generally what we do in lunar solar and planetary and what you're trying to do is basically capture the scene when it's very good and then it's basically a video is what you're doing so you're capturing the scene when it's very stable and then the software is picking the x number of best images and then stacking just the best images um now this has also been something that has started to come into deep sky astrophotography as well where people will use like a Dobsonian, something that's like limited on how long it can actually go. But um, you're basically taking a bunch of like really short, you know, maybe a couple seconds of an exposure and then you're taking thousands of them and you're actually stacking them into a final image. And I have seen people take some unbelievable images um, with stuff like that. Uh, but it's kind of a bit of work. So right now, um, shorter exposures versus long exposures is kind of a, a thing that's going on right now, especially because you have modern day cameras that have very, very high quantum efficiency. So they're getting, you know, 90, 95% of the, the photons that are coming in are, be are being turned into digital data. Um, so there's not a lot of waste there. So taking shorter exposures is becoming more and more possible because the cameras and the electronics have gotten so much better. So you don't have to take a five minute exposure because you're getting a lot of data in a short amount of exposure. So, um, you know, more frames, shorter exposures is better. What you're doing with lucky imaging is you're taking a lot more frames at shorter exposure times. Now, the advantage of that is number one, a lot less work or a lot less demand on your mount because you're taking really short exposures you might not have to worry about auto guiding or maybe you don't have to worry about auto guiding very long because you're not worrying about the stars streaking or having issues in a short exposure where as it gets longer you're waiting for more idiosyncrasies to happen in the gearing of the mount which will affect the overall image so if you take a bunch of short exposures the demand on the mount goes down um, and obviously faster optics like, you know, the Rasas and the Hyperstars and these faster, uh, like the Quattro Newtonians or even these little refractors, um, paired with these modern day, highly sensitive cameras, you can get a lot of data in a very short amount of time, maybe not even having to use an equatorial mount. So you're not getting that field rotation problem. You're still getting it as you shoot over time, but it's not to the point where it's blurring the images as it's rotating as well. So maybe you could use an alt-as mount instead. So now you don't have to polar align 
Um, there's no Meridian flip. You know, there, it addresses some of these issues that you run into with some of these mounts. But um, Lucky Imaging, I've found, is becoming more and more popular and might become more of a staple because the cameras are getting so good now and because optics are getting faster. So you're able to get a lot more throughput in less time. So Lucky Imaging is becoming more of a thing from the deep sky side of things. Um, and then, of course, you have less frames and longer exposures, which is still my way of doing it. Now, I find that there's a lot of people that are constantly looking at lucky imaging or not auto-guiding their setup or whatever they're trying to do. They're trying to mitigate the amount of effort they're putting into their equipment or mitigate the amount of demand they're getting on their mounts. So you can get away with a smaller mount. Maybe you're getting away with you're not auto-guiding on something and you're just like, oh, I'll take a bunch of short pictures. So I find that we're just moving the demand around. So if we're taking a bunch of short exposures, but we're taking more of them, the demand on our mount and our hardware goes down because we don't need to auto-guide or we're not having to auto-guide as long or at all, so you don't have to worry about that. But where that is being moved to is now your processing on your computer. So every time we take an image, let me see if I can pop this up real quick. Um, every time at our remote observatory, we are using a ZWO 6200. It is a massive camera, uh, full frame, 60 megapixel at one by one. Um, I usually shoot two by two bin because it matches up with the seeing a little bit better. But every single time I take a picture with that camera, it's about 30,000 kilobytes um, for each shot. Now, I don't know what that, let's see, 30,000 kilobytes to, to gigs. So that doesn't sound like a lot because it's 0 0.03. Um, that doesn't seem right. I think that was a smaller camera. Hold on just a second. I'm trying to make a point here and it's not going right because let me just find something I know was taken. Okay, yeah, so it's about 30,000 kilobytes at bin two by two. So that's 0 0.03 gigs every time we shoot that camera. At full resolution, it's like 120,000 kilobytes. So that is... 0.12 that's a tenth almost about a tenth of a gig every time I shoot that camera at full frame so in 10 images I'm at pretty much one gig every time we rattle that camera off so we could do this is what I'm trying to get to we could do lucky imaging with that camera or a lot of these new uh, systems um, but it doesn't matter if you're taking a one second exposure or you're taking a 10 minute exposure. Every time you rattle off a shot with these big format cameras, the file size is going to be the same. So at full res on our ZWO6200, we're about 120,000 kilobytes um, per shot. That's a big data file, big raw fits file. And whether it's one second or 10 minutes, it's the same size. So if I take 12 images at five minutes, that's an hour long, I'm only having to process 12 of those. And with a decent computer, that takes a couple minutes. Um, 
Now, if I wanted to do an hour's worth of exposure at one minute, now I have 60 of those files. Or if we're doing lucky imaging, now we're talking only a few seconds. So now we're talking hundreds of those files. And it doesn't matter to the computer whether it was one second or 10 minutes. It's still stacking a monster amount of data. So at the moment, I find that taking longer exposures is generally better than the shorter exposures because it's a lot less demand on my system. There's a lot of people out there that are saying, oh, I don't want to do, you know, auto guiding. I don't want to do, I don't need a bigger mount. It's too much money. Well, your investment is going to go from your, your system, your hardware, to now an investment in the computer that can handle processing that amount of data um, at that point. So that's something to think about. You're not actually gaining anything. You're just moving it around. So, and then of course, you also need the hard drive space to handle that as well, especially with these modern cameras. You know, a 2600 from ZWO or a 571 based camera, that's a 26 megapixel camera every time you shoot that off that's a high res chip um the the uh whatever the the 455 that's what the 6200 sensor actually is the sony 455 60 megapixels the megapixel department in cameras especially when it comes to the new sony chips i don't think is going to go down it's just going to go up because pixels are going to get smaller and you're putting more and more emphasis on your computer being able to handle that moving forward now my processing machine that's what we're running right now 64 gigs of ram four terabytes of drives it pounds through that data very quickly but it's also an upgraded machine with lots of ram on it which is what you need but a lot of average stuff that i a lot of average computers that we look at don't have a lot of ram so if you're one of these people who are like i'm going to take a bunch of shorter exposures because it's going to save me money or it's going to reduce my need for a larger mount, your computer is going to explode at some point because now you're investing in hard drive space and you're investing in extra RAM to run that data set because it's probably going to take a while to handle it. So that's the thing with lucky imaging where I'm not completely sold on the fact that you need to take a bunch and bunch of images. So that's just my take on it. Um, you can go anywhere you want with that, but it, it, everything is a compromise and you have to pull from somewhere. So are you demanding more of your telescope mount or are you demanding more of your computer and where's the investment going to go? Um, another thing that's coming up now is mini computers, which I think is awesome. So mini computers are a much more simplified approach to astrophotography. Now, when I'm talking mini computers, um, let me just get through here real quick. Um, I'm talking examples of this are the Prima Lucha Labs, Eagle, um, or the ASI Air. You know, these tiny little computers that can run your imaging setup. And this is a massive plus, I think, for a lot of our field imagers, especially if you're using like an ASI Air. It took me so long to get around to using the ASI Air that we bought here. Every, every customer I would talk to, just about, like 95% of the people I would talk about who are using like an EQ6R, um oh uh 
hard drives, I always use SSDs. If you can get SSD drives, there's less moving parts and they're faster. Um, I have a couple SSD drives that I use for imaging. HDD drives, which is your typical disk drive, those are fine too. The nice thing about those is you can get way more data on them um, at the moment, but if I could have one or the other, I would do an SSD preferably. So uh, that's just me. But anyway, going back, um, we bought an ASI Air here at Skywatcher a few years ago. Um, it was uh, it was not the first one. It was the Plus or whatever it was. Not the current production one. We have one of those now too. Um, but every single person I would talk to for the most part, 90% of my customer base was always talking about the ASI Air. And it was like, ah, yeah, whatever. They're freaking awesome is what they are. Now that I've used them, it's amazing what happens inside that stupid little box. Um, and if you want like a bigger version, essentially, you have something like the Prima Lucha Eagle or uh, Software Bisque makes their own. It's called the Fusion. Um, but the ASI Air is really intriguing because it fits in with the ZWO ecosystem of hardware, which is a plus and a, a negative in a way a plus because it's very plug and play it's very easy to use with all their hardware great no major drivers downfall is you can't really use anybody else's hardware at that point so if you want to use like a starlight express or something like that you can't um or you want to use a different software you can't um but cwo did a very nice job at making that whole ecosystem of products work very nice and now they have their am5 mount the the harmonic mount which is starting to ship they've done a very nice job at making a well you know engineered ecosystem of products that works together um which just makes it so much better for the customer um and us as astronomers because it's so turnkey and easy to use it's stupid how easy the asi air system actually is um now the prima lucha lab eagles are actually what we use on our remote observatory um at falling eagle observatory which is actually part of um skies away remote observatory um the prima lucha eagles are probably my favorite because they're a true mini pc it is a windows based machine um, you can put whatever you want on there. They have different levels of them. But if you're going to do like a remote system, like a true remote system where you're not there, that's the thing where the ASI Air can't really do um, because you have to be in constant contact with that device. A Prima Lucha Lab Eagle is like having a laptop at, at that point, just no screen. Um, and they've done a very nice job at making that all work. It's a little different experience than the ASI Air but it has a lot of very advanced features so much so that it can be used as a remote control system. So on our systems out at uh, skies away remote, we have one of these on each setup. Uh, we have an Eagle three on one and an Eagle four on the other. Um, and these, and I have an Eagle two here, which I would use in my backyard for years. Um, but I put the Sky X on it. I could run my Paramounts on that. Um, it's like having a laptop, except the little thing rides on your uh, telescope and you just use your device. So um, I feel for most people, especially if you've already bought into the ZWO world, the ASI Air makes a lot of sense and it's very, very affordable. Um, the Prima Lucha Lab Eagle is just a bigger, more advanced setup, which has way more customization features and just depends on what exactly you're wanting to do with it. Um, 
I recommend both of them. It just depends on where your budget's at and what you're using. The Prima Lucha Lab Eagle is going to give you a lot more usability on any hardware that you want to use because you can put any software you want to use on it. So advantage of that. Now, the important thing, uh, because you could go out and just buy a mini PC um, and pop it on your telescope. But the important thing between these two devices um, is the fact that they also have remote USB shutoff. So that's a really important system if you're going to be doing this remotely where you're not there at the telescope at all. Because if you're running a remote telescope system, you can't just go out and unplug the USB if it's giving you crap. You need a system like the ASI Air or the Eagle to where you can actually remotely turn off the power or the USB or whatever and shut that thing off and then reboot it. Um, that's the advantage of these systems. Now, there are other things like the Pegasus power boxes that do that, but they're not a mini PC that runs the software and all that too. Um, they're kind of a hub, if you will, which I guess you could uh, way use that, but they're, it's not quite the same thing. Um, but these mini PCs make actually imaging in the field a lot easier because you don't have to drag a whole laptop out anymore. Um, you could use a tablet and sit in your car if it's cold with like an ASI Air because you're right next to it. Or the Eagle, you could use it as a remote system. But I swear by the Eagles, if you want to do a remote observatory system, whatever that's going to be, the Prima Lucha Eagles are honestly the way to go. Um, they are a bit spendy, but if you're doing a remote system anyway, you could probably afford an Eagle. Um, if you're just imaging in the backyard or you're a field imager, the ASI Air, where you're going to be close in close vicinity of your telescope, but you don't need to be out there all the time. And ASI Air is a phenomenal little investment, and they're like 300 bucks. Um, both of these are excellent options. I'm sure we will see more of them out there. Both are awesome. It just depends on what you want to do. Um, but mini computers, I think, are a very positive trend that have started. Um, that's really just being thankful for technology becoming more and more available. But either of these are excellent um little options it really just kind of depends on what exactly you're trying to do um and how much control that you want so both of them i recommend both of them it just depends on the budget and what you want to do uh nightscapes uh nightscapes i think are more of a seasonal trend um you know usually it comes up in the summertime we get a lot of calls on i want to take milky way pictures well, great. That's what the Star Adventures for, or the Ioptron Sky Trackers, or the Vixen Polaris. You know, there's all kinds of little trackers out there that you can use. Um, but I'm sure every company that sells some kind of star tracker does see an uptick in interest around the summertime because we have a lot of people coming in from the photography side of things, a much bigger hobby, um, that want to get into astrophotography through nightscape. So generally when you talk about, you know, April, May, that's when everything's starting to come up. The Milky Way starts to, the summer Milky Way in particular, which is what everyone says is Milky Way season. That's where the trend is. Um, they want to get that really deep picture of the Milky Way core rising. Great. That's fine. Um, but it's very seasonal. Um, However, I've had to tell people before, it's not limited to the summer. The summer is bright and it's easier to capture, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's Milky Way season because there's also the winter Milky Way. The winter Milky Way has a lot of faint, very delicate nebulosity. It's not near as bright, but you have a lot of really cool things in there too. So there are two seasons to Milky Way. 
The easier one, of course, is the summer because it's big and bright and detailed, but do not forget the winter portion of the Milky Way either. Um, it does require darker skies, but it has its own unique look um, as well. So don't run off and say, oh, it's Milky Way season, it's summertime, because there's a whole other half of it as well. So, but I find that uh, nightscape photography is, is kind of a trend, um, mostly from the seasonal aspect to it. I also see there's a lot of trends in the composite side of nightscape photography. And personally, I will go out and tell you, I hate composites. Um, it's just not my thing. Um, I understand the story that a photographer is trying to approach when they do a composite. You want a very nice lit foreground and you want the nice Milky Way in the background. I understand that that is what you're trying, the story you're trying to portray. For me, I like one shot. This is what it looked like. I'm a photographer. It's my duty to tell you the story as it was, as I saw it. Um, so to me, I like nightscapes as one single image, no foreground compository. That's just my style. Um, if, by the way, you want to send in a composite image to us at Skywatcher for us to use, we will not publish it. We want one shot, what you do in the camera. So that's just kind of our rule. It's kind of a net geo rule. We don't want composites. I get that. It's if your thing. It's not our thing. Sorry. Rant over. So I probably upset a fair amount of people with that conversation too, but. Um, will we see mini computer from Skywatcher sometime in the future? I don't think so. There's nothing I have seen. Um, but I don't know. I never say never, but right now I, there's nothing that I'm aware of that's in development. There's a lot of really good options out there. And this is kind of the thing where people feel like, um, because all these other companies are making this, that automatically we should make this. And... I don't think that's the case. We're really good at mounts and optics. That's what we're good at. And that's where we kind of stay and move forward inside of. Um, so if, so, if another company's like, this is where like we're friends with the guys at Prima Lucha Labs. Um, if you called up, you're like, I want to do a mini computer. I'd probably just say, go do an Eagle. They've executed it so well. Just call Tom over at Prima Lucha here in the U.S., and get yourself an Eagle or get yourself an ASI Air, whatever you want to do. There are companies that are very, very good at that. You know, ZWO is great at making cameras and mini computers, but they don't do optics. We do optics. So rather than us having to do everything together, why don't we just work with each other and just mesh it together? There you go. So it's my opinion on it. Another thing is solar. Solar is a lot like nightscapes, though, where it's trendy because it depends on what's going on in the in the sky um, with the sun. And the sun has an 11-year cycle of, you know, max and minimum. So right now, the sun is starting to pick up. There's a lot of activity. So there's more people who are becoming more and more interested in getting into solar astronomy because the sun is becoming more active. Now here in North America, we have two major eclipses that are coming up. We have the annular in October of 2023, and then we have April, 2024, which is a total. Um, the last time we had the big solar craze was 2017's total solar eclipse. And that's where everything just disappears um, when it comes to solar equipment. 
we're about getting one year out from the 2023 eclipse and we're probably going to do more emphasis on that um as we get forward as preparing for something like that but solar is also a bit trendy because of the sun you know being active and not being active so that's something you want to think about um, as well if you're maybe considering solar equipment especially in the next year or two because right now we're still dealing with backlog of raw material so it still takes you a little bit of time to get something like a, a lunt 60 or maybe a day star or whatever you're going to get um, but as we inch closer and closer to those solar eclipses the demand for that product is going to skyrocket. So you're going to want to pay attention or maybe start considering taking a look at some of that. Um, I will let some of you know right now that myself, as well as some friends here in the Phoenix area, are working on a solar event, um, probably this October. I'll let you know more details, where we will have a lineup of various solar filters available and we're hoping to do kind of some presentations on things to talk about and prepare for those eclipses. But that way it gives people to see this is what a Daystar is like. Uh, this is what a double stack filter is like. This is a white light filter, a Herschel wedge, calcium. Because you can go to a star party and you can walk the field and be like, that's a big refractor. That's a big Dobsonian. That's this, that's that. And you get a nice spread of equipment. But with solar, that's hard to do because it's generally expensive and there's not a lot of it in one particular spot. Well, we want to change that. So hopefully this fall we'll be putting together a solar star party event uh, here in the Phoenix area. And if you're interested in that, let us know. Um, I'm trying to kind of pin that down as we speak for a venue and get some details together. But if you're interested in that, that's something we're working on for the fall. And we hope to have a big spread of stuff out there for people to check out where you can see almost everything you would consider and hopefully find something that will work for you uh, for these upcoming events. Um, but solar, I find, is very trendy by what's going on with the sun. So, But we're getting into a point right now where if you've considered it, whether it's a basic white light filter or some big old, like, Lunt 100 or something, now would be the time to really start considering that because it already takes a fair amount of time to get that equipment and as we start inching closer and closer to these eclipses and the public becomes more aware of it it's going to get harder and harder to get that equipment and you may even miss it so something to think about uh let's see what focal length would you need for solar telescope um honestly something basic like 400 millimeters is perfectly fine like the little lunt 40 works perfectly fine it's just a tiny little telescope it depends on what you want to do if you just want to do visual you know 400 millimeters probably all you need with like a 17 millimeter eyepiece um but it's just like anything else you could get more resolution um you could go to a bigger telescope um so that would be something you'd want to this is why you want to research into things like that um, another trend that's going on is faster optics so as we've seen, uh, cameras right now are getting smaller and smaller pixels. So the need to have these big, long focal lengths doesn't really make sense anymore. The goal right now with astrophotography and has always been one arc second per pixel. Now, that was harder to do a while ago because a lot of the pixels on a camera were about six to nine microns, you know, for a while. Now... You have cameras that are like 
two or three, you know, real tiny little pixels. So it doesn't make sense for you to have this big, long focal length telescope anymore if you're just trying to take some pretty pictures. Um, you can get one of these cameras, a small little fast telescope that's easy to set up, and you can get your one arc second of resolution and you're ready to rock and roll. Um, I don't feel that you really need these longer focal length optics anymore unless you're doing some kind of like scientific work. Uh, but it's also becoming a lot harder to find cameras that match up with these longer focal length telescopes where you need a six, seven, eight, nine micron pixel on your telescope to get the one arc second uh, that you're looking for. Now it's really easy to do that with like a ZW2600 or a 6200 and a thousand millimeter refractor, focal length uh, refractor or a Newtonian. You can get that one arc second per pixel and just blow it up because you've got that image scale and the capabilities to do it. That's if you're trying to, you know, shoot something in particular. Um, it all depends on what you're trying to achieve, but these smaller pixels on these cameras mean you can get away with either shorter focal lengths, which are easier to transport or longer focal length or faster optics. So, you know, a lot of these cameras like the 533, the 2600, the 6200, they're like 3.8 micron pixels. You only need something that's like eight, nine, a thousand millimeter focal length and you've nailed it. And that's really easy to do in a fairly small setup. So you don't need this big old thing anymore. So um, let me get through the last little bit here. This is actually going better than I thought. We're, we're actually working really well as far as time. The last thing I want to talk about is harmonic mounts because everybody is asking when we're going to do one. Um, right now, everyone is all over harmonic mounts. We should do it. Everyone should do it. And everyone pretty much is. I mean, the AM5 from ZWO is shipping now. Um, Ioptron's got their little hybrid version. Um, Pegasus is coming out with one. Um, of course, we have rainbow mounts, um, which you see here. Um, they've been shipping harmonics for a couple of years now. So harmonic mounts actually aren't even new. Um, you have like, I think it's like the Kronos mounts that were out for years, years ago. A harmonic mount is nothing new. It's just everyone's hopping on the bandwagon now about getting them. Now, I don't think there's any issue with a harmonic mount at all. I'm not against harmonic mounts. I, I've seen them. Um, what they really give you is a small portable mount with a high payload, um, which sounds awesome. So uh, very portable and able to use a big old uh, setup. It's just a different approach to an equatorial mount. Um, however, it's not the only way to do it. And just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean we need to do it at the moment. We might in the future. I don't know. I'm not the engineer. Um, it's whatever the engineers want to pursue. Like I said before, I am not in any way against harmonic mounts. I actually think it's cool that a lot of these companies are getting into it and it's giving people a different chance but as i've said before what i would like to say regarding harmonic mounts is a lot of people have gotten really used to a standard equatorial mount gears counterweights whatever they the way that you handle the way that you guide and the way that you approach that mount that style a standard german equatorial mount everyone pretty much knows 
the ins and outs and the idiosyncrasies of how those mounts work. You know, AVX, EQ6R, astrophysics, Los Mondi, parent, you know how to generally work with that system. Harmonic mounts are different in the way that you have to approach guiding and the way that you have to approach your setup. You need to make sure you have, because there's generally no counterweights, you have to make sure that your tripod is super solid. Um, not a big deal for maybe smaller stuff, but for those of you who are going to be putting bigger gear onto it, you need to make sure you have a footprint so your setup doesn't fall over. Um, and also the way you approach guiding on a harmonic mount is going to be different, which I think is very interesting because there's so many people out there that are just saying, I don't want to guide. I don't want to guide. I don't want to deal with guiding. Harmonic mounts are not getting you out of not having to guide. In fact, you have to guide even more rigorously on a harmonic map because of the periodic errors pulled out. Um, guiding is still very much a thing on a harmonic mount. What you're getting is just a smaller, lighter setup, which by all means, why not? Um, but I think they're a very cool approach to things. I think for a lot of people who are getting them, they're thinking it can be this way and I don't have to change anything on my workflow, but you are going to have to change it if you're getting one of the new harmonic mounts. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just people don't generally pay attention to doing things the way they should be doing. So I could see a lot of people who get one of these assuming that I'll just treat it the same as my EQ6R and you can't. It has its own idiosyncrasies that you just have to learn. And I'm sure as you do it, it's phenomenal. But just because everyone is doing it doesn't mean everybody else has to jump on it. Maybe we'll do one in the future. Again, I don't know. I don't have anything here that says we are. But um, for those getting the AM5s or rainbows or whatever, awesome. I look forward to seeing your images. Um, I'm sure it'll work. Just make sure you're paying attention to how the manufacturer would like that to be used correctly. So take your time and just learn it. That's all I'm saying on harmonic mounts. So that's that. But uh, anyway, that's pretty much our episode. I'm actually pretty happy with how today landed. I was worried we were going to blow through it really quickly, but uh, you can ramble on about anything astronomy for hours, apparently. So as my friends probably know, um, if you like what you see here, please go ahead and subscribe. Uh, info at skywatcherusa.com. Uh, title it What's Up if you have an idea for a future um, um, webcast. Uh, but that's it. Please leave a like on a video. Um, but that pretty much wraps up our trends in astrophotography. Um, next week, I am super excited for because we're going to have Phil Plate on, the bad astronomer. He's going to hang out with us. He might do a presentation, but I know we're also going to talk about Hubble and the James Webb Telescope because uh, Phil Plate actually worked on the Hubble team. So it'll be really interesting to get someone who's worked on Hubble and how Hubble has, you know, greatly expanded our, you know, minds into the universe. And now we have the James Webb Telescope that is just rocking the modern world with images. But next week we're going to have Phil on. That's going to be a super awesome episode. So please, please, please join us. That's 10 a.m. Pacific next Friday. Uh, bring your questions, but we'll have Phil on. That'll be pretty cool. Um, so pretty stoked for that episode. Uh, let's see. There were some questions. We did the Skywatcher mini computer. Not sure if we'll do that. Um, uh, focal length for solar telescope. Again, very depends on what you want to do. What's a good camera for an Edge HD? 
uh, eight. Um, that's a tough one because I don't know. When it comes to Edge HD 8s, there's three focal lengths that we can approach. There's F10 at 2,000 millimeter. There's F7, whatever that equates to. And then there's the Hyperstar up at the front. So uh, with if you're doing a Hyperstar system, probably a 533-2600, you know, something with 3.8 micron pixels. Um, if you're at F7, um, hold on. I will figure this out. If only we had a really neat calculator that you could just download for free. Oh, wait, we do. Scope Wizard. Um, we can figure that out. So let's see if we can figure out our buddy's question here. Maybe I didn't program this in. I might have to go back and put the reducers in. Um, but yeah, finding a telescope for an Edge HD... Again, it depends on what focal length you want to shoot it at. Um, at f10, that's probably going to be a bit of a challenge. At 2000, you're you're most likely going to have to like bin um, with that. Um, if you're shooting at f7 with a reducer, which I would probably recommend the most um, to do something like that. Um, let me just do this. So it's 203. It's an eight inch. 203 times seven. 1421 so uh with the focal reducer at f7 you're at 1421 um so for an edge hd8 to get one arc second per pixel you need something like a zwo 2600 and bin it two by two then you'd be at 1.09 arc seconds per pixel so you could get away with that most nights you might even have to go as far as three by three bin, which is 1.6, which is probably more if you're going to be doing it in the backyard. Um, that's just what you're going to have to do unless you can find a camera that's got some bigger pixels on it um, at this point. So that's the problem with these longer focal length scopes is there's a lot of cameras out there that just don't have those pixels. So a lot of times you're going to have to buy a modern camera and just bin it probably two by two or three by three. Um, at that point to shoot at f7 at f10 you're going to be there forever um, and then a hyperstar it wouldn't be a big deal because you just one by one been in the front you're good to go so that's what i would probably do uh there uh at f10 you'd be binning almost like four by four i would almost recommend getting the reducer for your edge hd and dropping it to f7 or binning the heck out of your camera um, at that point. So that would be my approach on it. Um, but there's different ways to do it. it. Just depends on what you want to do. So anyway, that's pretty much it for today's episode. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, is the harmonic mount immune to having uh, meridian flips? I don't know. I don't think so. I do think at some point you have to hit meridian flip because it depends on where the deck is at as well. So I think uh, meridian flips in certain aspects are still a thing with harmonic mounts not having had one in front of me i don't know so um i'm sure you'll find out as more people start to get more and more of them so all right guys that is pretty much it thanks for hanging out we will see you next week with phil plate it's gonna be awesome please have a good weekend don't burn up if you're in a hot spot and we will see you guys